We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 31 to 34. You know, it seems today that most people in America, perhaps even a majority of church members across the nation, think that Christianity is good advice for good people rather than great and amazing news for bad people who desperately need a Savior. In fact, the only Savior, Jesus Christ, who the good news is all about. This week I learned about one of our brothers and a sister in Christ, a husband and wife couple who live in an Islamic country where sharing the gospel, if you're caught, will get you thrown into prison and likely tortured to extract information about other Christians. Yet this couple is daily, diligently seeking to share the gospel with others because, as 1 Corinthians 9.23 describes, they want to share with them in its blessings even more than they want their own survival. And so each morning as this couple gets up, and starts their day when this husband and wife part ways, they acknowledge to one another every day. They acknowledge to one another that it might be the last time that they see each other because she knows that if she gets caught talking about Jesus, where she will be among her peers, part of her torture will almost assuredly include rape, probably repeatedly. He knows that if he gets caught among his peers sharing about Jesus, brutal things await him before a likely execution. But every day, this is their discussion at the breakfast table before they leave the house because they take Philippians 1.21 quite literally where Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And each day, they prayerfully pursue the spirit of Jesus' direction in order to show the lost the way of salvation. And they are busy equipping others in this Islamic country where it's dangerous to share the gospel to do the very same thing. A number of years ago, this same couple had the opportunity to move to the United States, and they did. After they'd lived here for a period of time, however, the wife began to to, to plead with her husband that they move back to their Islamic country of origin. Why? She told him, and I want you to hear these words, and I want you to think hard and long about them beyond this hour. It's like there's a satanic lullaby playing here, and the Christians are asleep, and I feel like I'm falling asleep. Can we please go back? It's like there's a satanic lullaby playing here and the Christians are asleep. How is it that we can enjoy such freedoms as we do? Know the gospel as we do. How is it that I'm able to study the word of God as much as I do and yet none of us have the sense of urgency for the lost that this couple has in a place where it's a hundred times more dangerous? Could it be that we don't truly realize just how good this good news really is? Could it be that we've become numb 
to the familiar sounds of grace that play all around us, even Sunday after Sunday in this very room. My prayer for me this morning, my prayer for you, is that the good news again today will freshly blow our minds and overwhelm our hearts in such a way that we will awaken from our spiritual sleep to the reality of a world of people all around us right here and to the ends of the world that are on the brink of eternal death without Jesus and once awakened that we would be emboldened to get radically risky in our lives with the gospel. We continue this morning in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. The book of Romans, this is our 25th time to visit this amazing book, and I don't know how many times in Romans chapter 8, what some have called the the most important and, and amazing chapter of the entire Bible. In, in Romans, we've been looking at the, at the book under this heading, the gospel of the righteousness of God. What is the book of Romans about? What is this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, the people whom he never met? What is it about? It is about the good news that holy God who demands perfect righteousness from us which none of us have, the Bible says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We are, in fact, unrighteous. The same God that demands righteousness from us gives us unrighteous folks all the righteousness that he demands through the life, death, and resurrection of his son to be taken as a gift on our part by simple childlike faith. The gospel of the righteousness of God. This morning, I want us to look in Romans 8, 31 to 34 at the spring of gospel risk. What is it that this brother and sister in an Islamic country know and stand on every day that causes gospel risk to spring out of their lives Every day, looking at one another, honey, I may not see you tonight. I may not come home today. If I don't, I love you and stay faithful to Jesus. What provokes that, that they know, that you and I too can know? Here's the take-home truth as we think about the spring of gospel risk. If we are standing firm on the solid rock of God's grace in Jesus, our lives will be springs of increasing gospel risk for the salvation of the nations. Please understand when I say the nations, I mean everybody you know, from your kids, parents, you have a gospel responsibility to them, to the nations, including places like Indonesia. How can we stand firm on this solid rock so that the spring of gospel risk flows from us to the nations? Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things. Now, we read this passage at the beginning of the the hour, uh, verses 28 to 30, but we need to remember the wonders of verse 28 to 30, because that's what he's talking about when he says, what shall we say to these things? So quickly, let's read through verses 28 to 30 again. And we know, Paul says, we know something. And we know that for those who love God, God works all things together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, as if it's already done, glorified, even though we're not yet. Amen? What then, Paul says, shall we say to these things? Now, there's a lot of stuff in verses 28 to 30. We, we, we kind of just skimmed the surface of that uh, last Sunday. There's some words that we're not sure what to do with in, in those verses, right? There's some confusing terms that we can even at points agree to disagree on. By the way, we, we, we went deeper on that on Wednesday night. We'll do it again this Wednesday night. If you'll know more about some of those words, come around Wednesday night, 6.30. We'll take a look. But here's, here, here's the summary of what these things is referring to. What Paul's basically saying is, look, you don't have to live in fear of your circumstances because your God who saved you and is saving you and will ultimately save you, he's been for you from before time began and he will be for you until eternity, for eternity. And he's done all of this positive good towards you, this everlasting good towards you through Jesus Christ. And so no matter what your circumstances may look like today, no matter what they may speak to you, what message they may communicate to you today, here's the thing never to forget that God is for you. And he's even working in those circumstances that seem and are oftentimes so tragic and terrible. Somehow in his sovereignty, he's working for your good. So what shall then, what then shall we say to these things? If these things are true, and they are, then there are some amazing implications for us, Paul is saying in verse 31. There's a, a solid rock of hope and assurance on which our hearts can stand and, and never be moved. And standing on that rock, our lives can be lived with increasing gospel risk for the glory of the one who has given us such hope that others may also enjoy this hope. So let's break this hope down. What then shall we say to these things? Number one, we can say there is no ultimate opposition for us. Verse 31 goes on to say, because our Father is for us, Verse 31 goes on to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Such a simple statement. But how power-packed is that one question? You see, our hope includes this. There is no ultimate, hear me, no ultimate opposition because our Father, the God of the universe, who we call Abba Daddy, is for us. Us. If God is for us, and 28 to, through 30 show you that he is, from eternity past through eternity future, if God is for us, who can be against us? What, just the, the profoundly simple reality that if God himself is our Savior God and our Abba Daddy, then who can be against us in such a way that it changes our relationship to God or our eternity with Him. You know what the answer is? It's obvious. Nobody. No one. Oh, there'll always be someone who's against you. Amen. You've got somebody right now. I do too. Hey, it's just it's part of life, isn't it? There's going to be people that oppose you, especially if and when you get serious about the gospel and making it known. 
like our brother and sister in, in that country that, that we were talking about earlier. They're opposed. Why? Because they're serious about Jesus. The world hated Jesus. It hates you when you talk about him. But Paul's point here is why should we ever truly fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? There is no ultimate opposition because our Father is for us. You see, compared to our Father's for us, His being for us, all opposition pales and will ultimately fall and fail before our Abba's love and power. We do not have to, and we must not let fear plague us. How many times does fear silence me in a moment where I could share Jesus? How many times does fear cause me not to step out in faith and do that thing the Spirit of God's calling me to do so that He will get greater glory, even though it's risky for me? How many times does fear stop me from doing that? Paul says, here's what you need to know in that moment. You need to remember in that moment, God is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? What can happen to you that will change your eternity? that will snatch you out of the Father's hand. You know what Paul's answer is? Nothing. Nothing. So if we're standing firm on the solid rock of God's grace in Jesus, remembering that we have no ultimate opposition in this world, then our lives can be be, uh, springs of increasing gospel risk for the salvation of our neighbors and the nations. No eternal, no ultimate opposition. Secondly, notice in verse 33, no valid accusations. And here's the reason, because God has forgiven all of our sins and declared us righteous in his sight in and through Jesus. Verse 33 puts it this way, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. You're right, we skipped verse 32 right there. We're coming back to that. We're going to end at verse 32. This 32 is going to wrap it all together, tie it all in a, in a pretty amazing bow, and present it as a gift to you to do something with at the end. Not only are there no ultimate, is there no ultimate opposition towards us, there are no valid accusations against us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Because God, you see, has forgiven all of our sins and declared us righteous in His sight in and through Jesus. Oh, again, just know you will be accused. Amen? Some of their accusations of me will be true, right? Because we're all still sinners. But Paul is saying that because of the sin-atoning sacrifice of Jesus for us and the perfect righteousness of Jesus given to us, none of the accusations, even if they're true, can be entered as evidence anymore. That ought to got more than one soft hallelujah. See, the deal is... There's things I have been accused of and there's things I should be accused of that I'm guilty of, amen? And by the way, a lot of times we don't like to be accused ever, but we're guilty. We want to turn the, turn the guns on the person accusing us, but we're probably guilty. Even when we're not guilty, we've been guilty, right? Sometimes people are just a little bit late realizing what we've done when they accuse us. 
Now, the point is, we all need to be accusing each other, and we all need to be bringing up each other's sins. That's not the point. The point is, when this happens, what I'm trying to, to get at is this. It doesn't matter whether the accusation is accurate or not. No longer, because of Jesus, can it be entered into evidence in the court of heaven. That is amazing. And don't miss this. It's your father who says, there's no reason to bring that up. I don't need to hear about that. I know about it. I know Jesus died for it. But it won't be entertained in this court. Because the righteousness of my son has covered it, has replaced it. That evidence is inadmissible. And so, not only do we not have, do we not have to and must we, must, must we not let fear plague us, we cannot let guilt plague us. How many times do we not tell somebody about Jesus because we don't feel like we're, stay with me, wherever there is yet? We don't tell somebody about Jesus because we just talked ugly to our wife or disrespected her husband or <laughs> stubbed our toe and said something we shouldn't have said. Whatever it may be, wherever we've blown it. We, and so in the moment of witness, we just feel like we can't speak that because we just messed up. And we let guilt over paid-for sin silence us. When this person needs to hear about Jesus even through a dirt jar. That's imperfect. Because here's the thing, it ain't about the jar, y'all. You with me? It's about the treasure, Paul says, that he's put in jars of clay. And hey, he put it in jars of clay. Why? So that everybody would see it ain't about us. It's about the treasure. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. People don't need me. They don't need a preacher other than to tell them about Jesus, amen? They don't need you. They need Christ, but they need him. And they need to hear exactly what he's done for them through my mouth and through yours. We don't have to let guilt plague us because, you see, there are no valid accusations anymore because of Jesus. It is God who justifies. If we are standing firm on the solid rock of God's grace in Jesus, our lives will be springs of increasing gospel risk for the salvation of the nations. As we realize, there is no ultimate opposition and there are no valid accusations. We'll be bold. We set free from fear and guilt. But thirdly, and, and, and lastly in this, in this vein, verse 34, there's no Ultimate opposition. There's no valid accusations, but thirdly, there is no heavenly condemnation because Jesus intercedes, hear me, now and forever. It's just an extension of what we've been talking about, but listen to verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn us if we're in Christ, if we're part of that group that love Him, who've been called according to His purpose? If a part of that group that God foreknew, predestined, called, is conforming to the image of His Son and will one day, justified, is conforming to the image of His Son and will one day glorify. If we're part of that group, 
Who is he to condemn that group? Who's going, who's going to stand up and condemn that group? Christ Jesus is the one who died, implication is, for us. More than that, Paul, Paul understood the importance of the resurrection. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, listen to this, who is interceding for us. You know, if Jesus had just died for us, we talk about this all the time, if he just died for us, he'd be no savior if he was still dead, right? He'd just be a dead man that did something semi-noble or perhaps, depending on your perspective, just crazy, right? But he rose from the dead. And because he lives, he can be and is the only Savior of the world, the only Lamb who took away the sins of the world. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that was raised. But not just that. He's right now at the Father's right hand interceding for us, Paul says. So not only will there not be on judgment day any heavenly condemnation, there is not today any heavenly condemnation. Back to your stub toe and that cuss word you let fly when you did it. You know what happens, according to this verse in that moment, when that happens in my life? And, and, and it's not that we shouldn't seek holiness and seek to deal with the, the tongue and bring it under, into, into obedience to Jesus. But here's the thing. You know what happens when, I, when that happens, according to this verse? Jesus says, Father, I died for that. For that sin in Chad's life right then. He is right now at the Father's hand interceding. Do you believe that? Have you, have you wrapped your mind and, and allowed your heart to embrace the grace of God as explained in this verse? That is powerful. And again, if that's the case, think of how bold we should be, how joyful we should be, how confident in our Father's love we should be. Now, what should I do when I stub my toe and say something I shouldn't say? I should agree. The Bible says I should confess it. I should agree with God. Confess means to say the same thing God says. I should say of that curse word, that was sin, Father, but I thank you that your son died for that. Now, I don't want to say that the next toe that gets stubbed. Help me be more like Jesus. By your spirit, empower me, like we've been looking at in Romans 8, to change and to grow in holiness. Holiness is Christ at work in me, we sang earlier, changing me. But Father, I thank you that right now I can still call you Father, and that one minute from now, 30 seconds from now, just as soon as, as, as the opportunity presents itself, I am your ambassador, and I can, and I must Honor your grace by telling the rest of this world of sinners like me about the Savior. It's how we ought to live. Rest assured, people will condemn you. You may even be guilty and have to pay a price for certain things that happen in this life, right? But if you are in Christ, there will be no condemnation entertained or pronounced by our Father in heaven. We do not have to and we must not let guilt 
or feelings of not being fully forgiven plague us. Or else we need to just cut out, tear out of your Bibles, Romans 8, which begins in verse 1 with these words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See the true or it's not. In Romans 8, 34, he is either right now, having paid for our sins, interceding at the Father's right hand for us, or he's not. Hebrews 7, 25 says it this way, of Jesus, it's just said that he, that, he, that he remains forever. The idea is he's been raised from the dead and he will never again die. He lives eternally. And he's our priest. He's our high priest. And verse uh, 25 of chapter 7 in Hebrews says, He is able, because he lives forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8, 34 tells us he is right now interceding for us and that comforts us in the here and now as we go through this life and as we blow it trying to follow him. He is in that moment interceding for us. But Romans 7, 25 says, and not only that, he'll be right right there at the Father's hand. Listen to me, forever. There'll never come a time in eternity where where God, he's God, He, he, he can't forget what Jesus has done. But there'll never be a time when the Son's not reminding the Father of what he's done for you, for me. You say, again, does the Father need to be reminded? No, he doesn't need to be reminded. The point is God speaks and and reveals what he's doing so that we can take comfort in these words. He puts it in language we can understand and that we can can appreciate and that that will cause us to, to be confident even for eternity. If we're standing firm on the solid rock of God's grace in Jesus, our lives will be springs of increasing gospel risk for the salvation of the nations. Well, I told you we'd end with verse 32, and so let's do it. Fourth thing I want you to see from this passage is in verse 32, the proof or the guarantee, I like both words, of our hope. The proof, the guarantee that there is no ultimate opposition, the the, 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 the the guarantee that there are no valid accusations. The guarantee that there is no heavenly condemnation. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. The guarantee of our hope. This verse is how you know there are no ultimate opposition. That there are no valid accusations that will stand in the court of heaven. That there is no heavenly condemnation toward you if you're in Jesus. This is how you know. This verse, I believe, is the most sweeping, focused, and ultimate summary of the gospel in all of Scripture. That's a big statement I just made, but, 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 but you dwell on this verse long enough and I think you'll agree. I believe it's the most sweeping, focused, and ultimate summary of the gospel in all of Scripture. It's an argument, by the way. It's a logical argument, which all of Romans is, especially Romans 8. But it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. There's a Latin name. I can't say it, so, and you don't care, so what difference does it make? But it's, it's the argument from the greater to the lesser. Meaning, if the greater thing has happened and is true, 
then the lesser thing can certainly be true and will surely happen. So an, so an illustration um, may help. So let's just say when I was, uh, when, when I was much younger and, and our, my kids were, were younger, <clears throat> this, this very well could have, have happened. My boys loved to get in my tools, take them to the woods, leave them there where they would rust, rot, and, you know, indefinitely for eternity, no doubt, disappear. <clears throat> and so, you know, there'd be occasions where I needed a tool, didn't have one. So I would say something, and this is, just, this, this part didn't happen, but I would say something to my son like, so can you run over to the, to the neighbors and ask them if I can borrow a pair of pliers for one hour since you and your brother lost my pliers and I may never find them? Can you run to the neighbors and ask me if I'm, and, and, and it, this, 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 this is the argument from the greater to the lesser. So imagine my son looking at me and saying, Dad, I don't know. That's a tall order. I don't know if the neighbor would like you to borrow, even consider, even entertain the, the fact that you could borrow his pliers for one hour. I mean, they're pliers, Dad. What Paul's saying in this verse would be kind of like my answer to my son. Son, here's the thing, what, what I didn't tell you. I feel pretty confident about the pliers because yesterday when you were at school, I borrowed his vehicle for half a day. Borrowed his car. He gave me the keys to his Cadillac for half a day. I'm pretty sure that if he would let me borrow his Cadillac for half a day, he will probably, most likely, unless he's using them, he'll let me borrow his pliers for an hour. This is how an argument from the greater to the lesser works. And Paul says, he who did not spare, listen, his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I think we read this verse too routinely and with numbing familiarity with the result that we miss the power of these words. So I want you to listen closely and slowly. He, God the Father, who did not do the expected thing and spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, just... Stop right there and think, who is Jesus? What's he like? Who were we? And what were we like when the Father made this decision? If he didn't spare his own son but gave him for us, how will he not also with him, with the ultimate gift, graciously give us all things, all things that we need to get through this life in faithfulness to him? We don't experience the shock of the statement, he who did not spare his own son, like we ought. We should feel when we hear those words, this crazy tension between his own son and did not spare. Because God the Father perfectly and infinitely loves God the Son. Throughout the Gospels, we read several different times God the Father speaking from heaven and saying, this is my beloved 
Son, in whom I'm well pleased. In Colossians 1, verse 13, Paul refers to, speaks of, speaks of the father-son relationship, and he talks about how Jesus is the son of God's love. He's a precious son to the father. And you know, even as an imperfect daddy, me, I cannot even begin to imagine giving one of my children to be killed so that a bunch of convicted thieves, rapists, murderers, liars, adulterers could be forgiven and completely viewed by the court of law as if they had never committed the first crime. In fact, as if they were righteous. And I'm a sinner, I'm not holy like the Father. My kids are dear to me, but they're not perfect like Jesus. But that is exactly what our Holy Father did when he did not spare him and gave him up on the cross for all of us rebel sinners. Just dwell on that for a few seconds. Paul is saying, since our Father did that huge thing, don't you think He can? Don't you think He will do all that we need Him to do in this life to work all things in our current circumstances together for the good and make sure that we make it home to heaven? Don't you think that He'll do it? Man, Paul wants us to be confident. Paul wants us to have a boldness in our relationship with God the Father that moves us to live life differently. That's why we're in 2 Corinthians 1, 20 to 22. Paul says this, for all, listen to this, this is an amazing statement. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. In who? Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And what's Paul saying? You get a yes to all of the good, gracious promises of God in Jesus. You've got a yes to every one of them. And it's God who's brought you into this whole deal. He's established you in Christ. He's anointed you. He's put his seal on you. He's given, us, given you his spirit in your hearts as a guarantee. The guarantee of our hope the guarantee that there is no ultimate opposition, there are no valid accusations, and there is no heavenly condemnation for us ever and forever. The guarantee is that if God did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for you, how will he not, along with you, give you all things? You see, if we're standing firm on the solid rock of God's grace in Jesus, our lives will be springs of increasing gospel risk for the salvation 
of the nations. Tim Keller says of these verses, the purpose of these questions is to almost beat us out of our disbelief. He just keeps hammering it over and over and over again so we get it. The disbelief that we're saved totally by grace and are therefore completely safe to face life without fear. It is incredible, relentless logic. It is what Martin Lloyd-Jones called logic on fire. Paul is saying, think. Are you afraid? You aren't thinking. Think. Are you worried? If you're worried, you're not thinking. Are you feeling guilty? Think. If you're feeling guilty, you're not thinking gospel thoughts. See the logic of free grace and justification. These aren't dry doctrines, y'all. They are life itself, and if you are not living with overwhelming assurance and power, you haven't fully understood them. They're not complicated. It's not about complicated things to figure out. It's about embracing with all your heart like a child the truth that is clear and plain and amazingly beautiful. If we're standing firm on the solid rock of God's grace in Jesus, our lives will be springs of increasing gospel risk for the salvation of the nations. You know, we just we can't know that such a salvation is ours and is possible for all who will believe the gospel and not go and tell the gospel. We just, we just can't. That can't be going on in our hearts and lives and us be faithful followers of Jesus. Because what we do know about those who have yet to hear the gospel is this. According to Revelation 6.15, the kings of the earth, this is going to happen one day, and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, politicians included, and everyone slave and free, you know what they're going to do? It says they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? People you live with and work with that don't know Jesus, if they don't, Embrace him. If you're not faithful to tell and they don't believe, that will be their fate. There is a world, a globe, a planet full of millions upon millions of people who have yet to even ever hear the name Jesus, much less the truth about him that we know and understand. And I believe God will faithfully get people to those who need to hear. But unless the message goes and they hear and believe, the scripture makes it plain, that, Revelation 6, will be their fate. How can we know there is hope? How can we know that there is a foundation that's rock solid on which any sinner can stand and be accepted and in eternal fellowship with the God of heaven 
and not go tell that message about Jesus. If we're standing firm on the solid rock of God's grace in Jesus, our lives will be springs of increasing gospel risk for the salvation of the nations. Let's pray together.